Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 36 of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is a show where we celebrate more than seven decades of the world's finest heroes by looking at team-ups, mostly chosen at random and mostly from the pages of World's Finest Comics. This time, we are traveling back, back, way back, to the wild and wacky days of the Silver Age of Comics for a look at World's Finest Comics number 110. Astute listeners to the show will remember that we covered issue 109 back in episode 28. So for the first time, we will have looked at two consecutive issues of the title. And part of the fun of my selections for the show, being mostly at random, is that it does allow me from one episode to the next to cover widely different eras of these characters. But it's also fun, you know, once in a while to get issues that are closer together, just to, to see how they stack up against one another. Um, I had overall favor- favorable comments about the other, so hopefully this one will hold up as well. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, World's Finest Comics number 110 was released around April 19th, 1960. It has a June 1960 cover date and 32 pages for the cover price of one dime. Our cover is by Kurt Swan and Sheldon Moldoff, and it shows a huge, green, tentacled alien looming over an unconscious Robin. A black-and-white image of Robin shows on the alien's torso as Superman charges to the attack, and Batman warns the alien has stolen Robin's life force, and harming the alien could mean death for Robin. And make no mistake, this is a very silly cover. But taken within the context of the time and who the comics were aimed at and and what they were trying to achieve, this is a really great cover. I've talked before about the genius of Robin as a character and that he lets kids put themselves into the stories. But Robin also presents the potential of cannon fodder. And I think kids in 1960 were aware enough to know they weren't actually going to kill off Robin any more than they were going to kill off Superman or Batman. Even when you're young and not as aware of storytelling techniques and such, there's still a kind of safety in your entertainment that you know, at least in the back of your mind, that the main characters are going to be okay. And for DC's part, you know, it's not like they were going to let the Joker beat him to death with a crowbar or something. But still, Robin's not the lead hero of the strip. So from the kid reader's perspective... Despite that inferred safety, there's always the idea that he could be killed or permanently dealt with in some way. And that lets covers like this with Robin work so very, very well. Having the alien take up so much of the cover rather than the heroes makes it more akin to what was seen on House of Mystery or or Tales of the Unexpected rather than Batman and Superman during this period. But it works well and maybe even more so because of that because it subverts the reader's expectations, further adding to that, uh, that doubt to the, as to the perceived assumptions of Robin's fate. So it's a dramatic cover, again, taking it within the context of the time, and it presents the reader with this, this nice juicy carrot hinting about the plot within. My biggest nitpick is the yellow background. Um, I think a darker or moodier color might have given it more a more sinister tone and allowed the alien to pop out even more. But that's a very minor complaint, as, as most issues of the title from this era had 
brightly colored backgrounds, regardless of the mood that they were trying to convey. So, turning inside, our 12-page lead story was written by Jerry Coleman, penciled by Dick Sprang, inked by either Sheldon Maldoff or Ray Burnley, and the entire issue was edited by Jack Schiff. He came to Earth on a mission that threatened to wipe out Gotham City, and when Superman, Batman, and Robin tried to stop him, he struck back with an incredible and cruel power. Indeed, it seemed there was no way possible of stopping the alien who doomed Robin. A strange spacecraft lands on the outskirts of Gotham City. From inside, a green tentacled alien emerges, placing what looks to be scale models of alien cities on the floor of a nearby cavern, and saying, Lack, Krog, Zarns, Vorno, and now the Earth. Soon, my task will be complete. Soon, while on a routine patrol, Batman and Robin see the creature using a ray gun to shrink a building to the size of a toy. A police officer, who also happens to be on the scene, warns the dynamic duo to stay back and fires his gun at the creature. Unfortunately, a magnetic field generated by the creature deflects the bullets, causing our heroes to leap into action. Using a cannon from a conveniently nearby circus, the dynamic duo fire themselves like human cannonballs, knocking the creature off its feet. But the creature's size and strength are too much, and after a mono mono e tentacle o brawl Batman and Robin are tossed through the air, just as Superman arrives, having heard a radio report of the creature's rampage. The Man of Steel lays into the creature with a Kryptonian haymaker, demanding it leave Earth immediately. The creature counters by firing flames from one of its tentacles, setting fire to a nearby chemical warehouse before fleeing. Batman and Robin pursue in the Batmobile, while Superman digs into the street, poking holes in the city water line to act as a makeshift sprinkler and extinguish the blaze. Soon, a panic grips the residents of Gotham City, as the creature cuts a swath across the town, shrinking and absconding with portions of the city, including a bridge and the Gotham City Museum. Meanwhile, the world's finest heroes have trailed the creature to some isolated cliffs outside of town, but are having trouble locating it until Robin sees the creature coming right at them. Knowing their location means the creature can't endanger the populace this time, Superman charges into action once more. Undeterred, when the creature's torso becomes brilliant like a mirror, Superman lays into the creature with a hard left hook to the jaw. The Man of Steel is surprised, however, when Robin cries out in pain just as the punch lands. An image of the Boy Wonder appears on the creature's abdomen as it explains he has absorbed part of Robin's life force, and that any pain caused to him will likely be, be inflicted upon Robin, and that in the Boy Wonder's weakened state could ultimately lead to death. Scooping the dynamic duo onto his back, Superman delivers them to a doctor, who confirms the creature's claim, further adding that, while he can't explain it, Robin likely has only four hours to live. Constructing a cage from a super-compressed material harder than diamonds, Superman attempts to capture the creature as it resumes its rampage, but the creature uses blasts of air pressure from his tentacles to escape the prison. Back in the Batcave, Robin briefly revives before again falling unconscious. Thinking something must have broken the creature's connection, even if only temporarily, Batman heads out to tell Superman. Meanwhile, Superman has tracked the creature back to the cliffs where they had their earlier conflict. Being a good 1950s villain, the creature sees no point in not revealing his entire plan, telling Superman he's shrinking buildings from Earth and many other worlds in order to take them to a barren asteroid, 
where he will enlarge them to create a tourist attraction. So Superman, being one of these bleeding-heart anti-capitalism liberals, is all like, you can't do that. And the creature reminds him that there's no way to stop him because of his, of his connection to Robin. Batman arrives, and the two heroes puzzle over why that connection was temporarily broken. After some thought, Superman remembers a truck pass when Robin's reflection disappeared, which gives Batman an idea. Backing the Batmobile into the cave, the Dark Knight puts it in neutral and revs the motor, filling the cave with gasoline fumes, which not only weakens the creature, but angers environmentalists the world over. With the creature stunned, Superman flies in for the knockout punch, removing any threat the creature posed. Superman then uses the creature's navigational charts to determine his home planet and restore the stolen buildings. While Batman and Robin keep the creature's shrinking ray as a trophy, saying it's only fair as the creature had had a piece of Robin all day. Cue laugh track. The end. I think a lot of my sentiments regarding the cover of the issue also apply to this story. Because this is a very silly story. But reading it within the context of the time, and most importantly, who these stories were aimed at, I, I might stop just short of saying this is a great story, but it's pretty good. Now, I will admit, the Creature of the Month getting taken out with gas fumes ranks on par with the first Justice League of America story, which maybe only coincidentally came out about four months before this, where the monster villain, who in that case was Starro, is taken out with lime. But other than that, you know, the, the alien is pretty silly looking, but is written as a serious threat. He seems to be a fairly formidable foe before he absorbs Robin's life force, displaying the ability to generate fire and jet force air blasts and repel bullets or any kind of metal, not to mention his strength and speed. And once he forms that connection with Robin, he presents a new threat in that Superman and Batman can no longer approach him physically. So he becomes a he, he becomes a physical threat much like the composite superman did or will do but is one that they can't treat like a physical threat when superman and batman are paired writers will a lot of times fall into that cliche of of batman being the brains and superman being the brawn but these are two kids adventure strip characters who's first reaction is usually going to be to use their fists. Even in the Bronze Age story we looked at last episode, we saw that. Uh, that story opened with Batman taking out crooks, not by outthinking them, but by getting physical. And while it's nice to see the heroes using their brains to outwit villains, at the end of the day, on a very base level, we want to see heroes and villains punching each other. So it's a clever twist for our heroes, especially in this era, when that's taken completely off the table and they are presented with a threat where they absolutely have to use their brains even though it is a physical threat. Um, I, I love the emotion brought on by putting Robin in peril. There's a genuine feeling of urgency and concern on the parts of both Superman and Batman when Robin is feeling pain after Superman hits the creature. And I'll talk more about the art later, but Dick Sprang's Robin looks like a little kid and the look on his face at the top of page eight when he's holding his jaw it's one of 
real pain and, and vulnerability. And it really sells the moment in a way that a, a Kurt Swan drawing uh, – in a way that if Kurt Swan had drawn this story, it might not have. And that's not a dig at Kurt Swan because, as you all know, I really love Kurt Swan's work. But Dick Sprang is a different kind of artist, and he was able to just do a, a, a – with his natural style, the way he draws Robin, it really helped sell the story. Uh, but again, I, I think no matter the age of people reading this story in 1960, I think they were aware enough to know that they weren't actually going to kill Robin. But there's still that perception of danger and the puzzle of just how are they going to get out of this that works just as well in this story. And again, I, I think people, no matter the age, reading this in 1960, were aware enough to know that they weren't actually going to kill Robin. But there's still that perception of danger and the puzzle of, well, just how are the heroes going to get out of this that works so very, very well in this story. Um, the gimmick of the creatures shrinking buildings to take them to an asteroid to make a tourist attraction, I'm not going to mince words. It's downright goofy. Coleman probably could have come up with a better motive for the aliens coming to Earth and, and rampaging through Gotham. But a lot like things we've had on other stories that we've looked at on the show, I can overlook that in a sense because the story's more about the threat posed by the alien rather than what brought him here. And that's interesting enough and provides for a good story, so, you know, it's fine that that's a little silly. Unlike, you know, and again, I'm going to refer back to the last episode where we never even got a reason for why the aliens did what they did. One thing about it, though, the creature shrinking buildings is certainly evocative of Brainiac's shrinking cities. Brainiac had made only three appearances when this story came out, including one that was published just the month before this issue. So he wasn't necessarily a, a huge name villain yet. But his second appearance came in World's Finest Comics number 100, which was edited by Jack Schiff. So even though the writer was different, I was really surprised that there wasn't at least an offhand mention, uh, given the two villains' similar modus operandi. Um, the art, you know, I touched on it, and I've raved about Dick Spring before, but man, the art here is fantastic. The alien does look pretty goofy, but I'll give it to Sprang that he, he really gave him a unique look. Uh, Superman, Batman, and Robin look great as always. There are a couple places where the anatomy, um, especially for Batman, looks a little bit off, but it's it's nothing egregious. And given that this was near the end of Sprang's career, uh, I, I think at this point he was down to just the Superman and Batman story here in World's Finest Comics. Uh, so maybe he was losing his, you know magic touch but don't but don't take that as a negative because it's nothing i mean it is a negative but it, it's nothing i would complain about if i wasn't reviewing the book and certainly not something that would make me drop the book um if i was reading you know if i was reading it in 1960 and paying you know paying for it off the shelf i would just say there's a couple minor places where the art goes from a 10 to a strong nine I do really love pages four and five. This is a scene where Superman swoops in and gobsmacks the creature who then sets the chemical plant on fire. And, and you know, just as a quick aside, 
just how many chemical factories are there in Gotham City? We had the one from the Batgirl story, or sorry, the Batwoman story. This one, there have been chemical plants and other stories we've read. I guess it's no wonder that Gotham is such a cesspool because you know those things aren't up to code. But anyway, it, it's a great page and a half of action, and I absolutely love the panel of Superman drilling into the ground. Uh, we see pavement flying and a huge red crunch sound effect that's drawn into the art. It's, uh, it's just a really awesome-looking panel. But on the next page, the page is basically divided into six panels. Uh, Sprang, he doesn't really use a six-panel grid, like a strict, rigid six-panel grid throughout the story, but most of the pages are, are kind of in a six-panel form. But on page six, Sprang has sort of joined the top two panels to show uh, two different scenes of the creature shrinking a bridge in a museum, and he divides it with this wistful, wavy line that kind of gives them a, a montage feel. And it's a really good technique that you really didn't see too often in this era. And over on page 8, there's a very emotional panel. And I keep using that word, but I, I don't know what other word to use. But this is right after Batman has learned Robin has just four hours to live. And he's in the Batcave, hunched over, wrapped up in his cape, He's got one hand to his forehead and the other clenched on the table. And the narration says, later, in the lonely silence of the Batcave. And there's a big, uh, a big speech balloon, a dialogue from, from Batman about Robin's fate. In the modern books that we read, you know, the, the moody, all darkness all the time Batman is commonplace. But this panel really stands out in contrast to the Batman who just a few pages earlier was all smiles and action. And it really helps to drive home the severity and, and the, uh, the seriousness of the situation. So all told, you know, this, this is a pretty strong issue. Again, I, I wouldn't call it uh, great, but it's, it's, it's just, just a hair short of being a great issue. Again, taken within the context of the time. If you're going to look at it, you know, if you're going into it looking for a read comparable in storytelling and, and tone of something you might pull off the stands today, you're probably going to be disappointed. But keep in mind that this was published in 1960 and all that entails, and you've got yourself a winner here with this story. So that said, now it's time for our customary mid-show break. And then I'll be back for a look at the rest of the issue and what else was on the stands. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Greetings, citizens. Join me, your old bat chum, John S. Drew, on my journey to discover what it is I love about the classic 1966 Batman television series on the Batcave podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest host as we review the classic television series. There's a new episode every two weeks. Same bat time, same bat channel on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at thebatcavepodcast.com. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. 
Fantastic Ass is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? This story has been reprinted three times. The first was in World's Finest Comics number 161, and that was an all-reprint issue that also includes the alien Superman, the caveman from Krypton, and the Super Batwoman, which were covered on this show in episodes 3, 26, and 33, respectively. And you can also find The Alien Who Doomed Robin in World's Finest Archives Volume 3, and Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 1. If you want to hear another podcaster's take on the story, be sure to check out Episode 303, Part 2, of Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast, which came out about a year ago. Other features in the issue include a seven-page Tommy Tomorrow story by Jim Mooney, titled The Robot Raiders, and there's a seven-page Green Arrow story, by France Heron and Lee Elias, titled The Sinister Spectrum Man, who I'm guessing is about as sinister as Crazy Quilt. Maybe less. Ad-wise, there's not a lot to talk about. Uh, we do have a, a, a nice ad for Palisades Amusement Park, and it's a different ad than I'm used to seeing in books. Um, it's a nice image of Superman, but I'm not sure who the artist is. It looks... Kind of like it might be Kurt Swan, but if it is, it certainly wasn't inked by any of his regular inkers at this time because the the hair and the face both look just a little un-Kurt Swan-like. Uh, but the ad does double as a free child's admission to the park with purchase of an adult admission. So tear up your comic and go ride a roller coaster, I guess. There's also a PSA extolling the virtues of time management. I'm sure that was a big hit with the kids. Uh, Sadly, no superheroes in this one. Uh, There seems to be an inordinate amount amount of house ads compared to paid ones in this particular issue. Uh, But those ads plug upcoming issues of The Brave and the Bold, Showcase, Detective Comics and Batman, Challenges of the Unknown, and Black Hawk. Haka! But that leads nicely into our next segment, which involves taking a trip in the time machine via Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. And the first thing I see on the virtual spinner rack here is Blackhawk number 149, Haka! which I bring up only because the cover is fun. Uh, the group is taking on the fireworks master, and, and he looks exactly like a guy that would take on the name of 
the fireworks master but it makes for a nice cover uh it also you know somewhat of a rarity as most covers from this time had the blackhawks fighting some huge beast or alien menace rather than a, a more human villain uh, Batman number 132 sees the dynamic duo taking on the Sea Fox. Clearly, between the Fireworks Master, Spectrum Man, and the Sea Fox, DC was working overtime to make sure Wizard Magazine would have a steady supply of morts 25 years in the future, 30 years in the future, whenever Wizard was popular. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't all bad, though, because speaking of villains, we have Mystery in Space number 60. In, in that issue, Adam Strange takes on Egardus, the sentient planet. Predating Marvel's Ego, the living planet, by six years, and DC's Green Lantern Mogo by 25 years, Egardus is a planet that, I kid you not, uses tentacles to kidnap people, including in this story, Alana Strange. Comics, everybody. Egardus makes, I think, only one other appearance. Um, about 20 years from now in a DC Comics Presents issue that I'm sure Russell Bragg will tell you all about when he gets there on his DC Comics Presents show, which you should all be listening to. Uh, but two other villains with much more staying power made their debut this month. The first in The Flash, number 113, where we get the first appearance of Jesse James, a.k.a. The Trickster, and the other comes in the month's biggest book, The Brave and the Bold, number 30 which is not only the Justice League of America's third appearance, but the first appearance of Professor Ivo and his android creation, Amazo. And the last book to mention, not because of the villain, but it's Action Comics number 265, which is notable because the Supergirl story inside, with the unfortunate title of The Day Supergirl Revealed Herself, is the second story in Jerry Siegel's two-and-a-half-year run on the character in the back pages of Action Comics. So that's it for the issue. But it's not the end of the show, because I've got one more thing to do before I go. As part of the show's comeback, I made a promise that anyone who Facebooked or tweeted about its return and used the hashtag PoundSuperBatPodcast would be entered into a drawing to win a copy of Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 1, which, as you just heard, coincidentally contains the story we looked at this episode. To my left, I have a metal lunchbox. Adorning the outside of that lunchbox are images of the greatest hero in comic books, Superman. The front of the lunchbox has a great Ross Andrew drawn Superman, and on the outside, or along the outside edges, we have recreations of covers, some classic Superman covers by John Byrne, Jerry Ordway, uh, looks like Ed Benes, there's a Nick Carty, uh, there's a Golden Age cover, I'm not sure who drew that, we're going to say Fred Ray, just, just classic covers of Superman through all eras. But... What's more important than what's outside the box is what is inside the metal lunchbox. Because inside are several slips of paper, each containing the name of someone who participated in the contest by promoting the show either on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag as I just described. So can you hear can you hear all those names, all those pieces of paper? 
I really hope you can, because if you can't, then this is probably going to be just kind of a stupid part of the show. But there are many, many slips of paper in this metal lunchbox. So we're going to shut the lid, shake it up a little bit. All right. Now we're opening it back up. We're going to draw one out. And the winner, well, I have to draw one out first. Okay. Just one. Okay. Scintillating podcasting, I know. This went much better in my head. Okay, we have one piece of paper. Lunchbox down. And the winner is... Suspense is killing you, isn't it? The winner of a free copy of Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 1 is... Ryan Daly. Count Druncula himself, host of Flowers and Fishnets and Dead Botham Spies and the Secret Origins Podcast. So, congratulations, Ryan. I will be in touch with you if, for some reason, that hasn't happened by the time you heard this. Just shoot me an email to michael at greatcrypton.com, and we'll coordinate a way to get you your prize. Folks, I want to say again, thank you very, very, very much to everyone who helped promote the show's return. Whether you played the promo or mentioned it on your podcast or your blog or you retweeted or you know shared something on the other other social medias I, I would give you all prizes if you could if I could because I, I am really appreciative of the warm welcome the show has has received in coming back uh, like I said in the mailbag episode when a show is gone for eight months, it's quite possible that show is going to come back to no audience whatsoever. Uh, but I have come back to not only the audience I had before, but more people who have checked out the show since it came back. So just again, thank you very, very much from the bottom of my, my, my heart. I, I really do appreciate it. As always, feel free to send your thoughts and comments on this episode or any episode of the show to michael at gertcrypton.com or you can post them on the website at, uh, in the show notes post for this episode. And be sure to keep sharing the love for the show on Facebook and Twitter and if you use Instagram or Google Plus or the, the G, what's it called? The, the Gmail? Not Gmail. The Google Plus, that's what it's called. If you use that, share some love. The show's not on any of those except for Facebook and Twitter, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't spread the love and, and get the word out to more people. Uh, but that's it for this episode once again Ryan congratulations on winning the prize thank you all for helping promote the show thank you for listening and I will talk to you all next time goodbye
listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Close out this episode was Peace of My Heart by Big Brother and the Holding Company from their 1969 album Cheap Thrills. Now I realize it's a bit of a stretch relating this one back to the story, but if I have a chance to play Janis Joplin, I'm going to take it. And if you have a chance to listen to Janis Joplin, you also should take it. And lucky for you, because you have listened to this very podcast, you are empowered to do so. And the best way to do that is to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner on their site. Purchase music by Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company, or pretty much any other artist you like, and Two True Freaks will get a little commission off your purchase. Not only will you get new music for your library, but it won't cost you anything extra, and it helps support one of the greatest podcasting sites out there. <laughs>